0: welcome back to the aua university podcast today we are going to be listening to the second opinion cases ask the guidelines in recurrent urinary tract infections this was presented at aua 2019 in chicago on the plenary
1: dr Kogan, dr smith thank you for allowing us to present our, our uh, uh Information from the new recurrent UTI guidelines. Um, I'm gonna start off by introducing our illustrious panel members. Uh, we have here today Dr. Jennifer Anger, who also comes from Cedar sinai uh, Dr. Toby Chai from Yale University School of Medicine, Dr. Duane Hickling from Ottawa Hospital, uh, Dr. Kim Kenton, who is representing and helping from the uh, gynecology side, and she's from Northwestern, and Dr. Ann Stapleton, who's our infectious disease consultant, uh, who is here from the University of Washington. And these are our disclosures. All right, so To start off, the past few decades have really provided us a better understanding of the natural history and the clinical outcomes of both uncomplicated cystitis and recurrent urinary tract infections, and have brought with us a new recognition of the adverse effects of repetitive antimicrobial therapy. And this manifests at the societal level in the rising rates of antimicrobial resistance, as well as having particular individual consequences, many of which have yet to be fully characterized. And thus, there exists a need to provide direction on the management, prevention, and treatment of recurrent UTIs to address these issues and to improve the outcomes and the quality of life for women affected by this condition. So we're gonna go through several cases to try to demonstrate some of the salient points from the new guidelines, and we're gonna start off with what something many of us have probably seen many times, the 25-year-old who presents to your office with recurrent urinary tract infections. She describes episodes of recurrent dysuria and hematuria associated with strong urgency and frequency that typically start one to two days after intercourse. Typically, when she gets one of these infections, she goes into an urgent care where where a culture is done, and she's given an antibiotic. Her her cultures are typically E. coli, greater than 100,000 colony-forming units. And between infections, after she takes antibiotics, her symptoms typically resolve, and she doesn't seem to have any symptoms at baseline. Dr. Stapleton, what would you recommend as an initial workup for this patient?
2: I'd recommend a history and physical, and if she has, current symptoms, we would do a urinalysis and culture.
1: All right, so on her history, she's relatively uh, benign. She has not had any children. She's currently on a low-dose oral contraceptive pill. And on exam, she has normal external genitalia, a little bit of vaginal thinning that's consistent with atrophy, but otherwise no masses or tenderness any place on her exam. So Dr. Chai, would you recommend any further imaging or diagnostic testing for this patient?
3: Uh, No, I would not recommend any diagnostic imaging in this uh, uncomplicated patient.
1: Great. So then suddenly, as you're sitting there talking to her, she remembers that when she was a kid, she probably had something. Her mother told her she had some kind of urologic surgery. She remembers some kind of test with a catheter and an X-ray. And she remembers maybe (laughs) taking some antibiotics for a while, but she thinks she grew out of it. Does this change anything in your evaluation of her?
3: Well, it sounds like she had vesicle reflux as a child possibly, and um, probably resolved. So I would probably get a renal ultrasound in this um, history, with this history.
1: Okay, great. So throughout the course of these cases, I'm gonna be showing the algorithm that accompanies the new guidelines, and so, this, so you can see sort of areas that, that um, uh, we're covering as we go through, and up here you can see uh, this portion of it. Well, it turns out for her, all of her evaluation was completely normal. She has normal anatomy, no reflux, and, and, and no signs of hydronephrosis. Uh, and so now she wants to come in and talk to you a little bit more about treatment. And she asks you, is there something she's been doing wrong? Dr. Enger, could you, what,
2: how would you counsel her at this point? My UTI patients are the cleanest population that I know, and it's important to make her not feel guilty or let her know she's not doing anything wrong herself.
1: All right. Um, so in terms of how to move forward with her treatment, she really doesn't want to take any more antibiotics and is wondering if it's, it's okay for her to just not take antibiotics in the future. Dr, Dr. Stapleton, what would you say to that?
2: If she does have a symptomatic infection, we would want her to be treated appropriately uh, with a uh, first-line therapy. But if in between infections, she would like to avoid antibiotics, this would be our preference in in terms of uh, maintaining a healthy microbiome in the vagina and urinary tract.
1: Great. So she mentions in the past that she's had a history of recurring yeast infections, which is why she's really anxious about antibiotics. And she wants to try something for prevention that maybe isn't antibiotics, or, or is there something more natural that she can use? Dr. Hickling, what might you recommend for her?
4: So um, there is some evidence now in, in women who drink less than a liter and a half, the dehydrated women, that uh, hydration can reduce uh, the risk of infection significantly. So that's something to stress. Uh, cranberry uh, cranberry products are sort of the best uh, or uh, best uh, supplement that's studied, and we could recommend that that there is a modest uh, reduction in infection. Other supplements like D-mannose and vitamin C, there is lack of uh, clinical evidence to support routine use.
1: Okay, that's great. So she does, she does opt for trying the combination of increased hydration and cranberry prophylaxis. And then she asks you, she says she keeps seeing in the Whole Foods when she goes shopping, these supplements that say that they're gonna protect her against urinary tract infections. Is there any harm or, or should she be taking those or any vitamins she should be using?
4: So, as I mentioned, there's really a lack of evidence to support any of these other uh, supplements.
1: That's great. So, she does well for about two months on this regimen of increased hydration and in cranberry prophylaxis, but then suddenly calls your office complaining of this acute onset dysuria again with some hematuria that started one day after intercourse. She's not having any fevers or chills or any pain, uh, and she calls asking, What should we do now, Dr. Anger?
2: We need another culture.
1: All right, great. So, uh, so she does uh, get bring you a urine specimen, and uh, this is and you send for both a urine analysis and a culture. Uh, the culture comes back with greater than 100,000 CFUs of E. coli that's sensitive to all of the antibiotics assessed. Um, so, what, Dr. Stapleton, what can you offer her for treatment?
2: At this point, we would want to give her one of the first-line therapies, um, according to the Infectious Disease Society guidelines, which we're endorsing in this guideline. And in the community, if you have no greater than 20% resistance to trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, that would be a possible choice, or nitrofurantoin, macrobid, or fosfomycin. Uh,
1: That's great. So. Um, Dr. Chai, she, she says to you as you're on, your, on her way out of the office, uh, she says, you know, I, I feel like these always are coming back or maybe they don't resolve. So should you, should you give her maybe 10 to 14 days of, of an antibiotic or something stronger so we can make sure she gets over this?
3: Yeah, I think that's a pretty common question. It's like, if a little is good, more must be better. But there's really no evidence that treating her additional days was gonna prevent, you know, or take care of her better.
1: All right. Um, so, she gets better after this short course of macrobid, and now she thinks it's time to move on from cranberry to something that's a little more aggressive for prophylaxis. Um, so what, uh, Dr. Hickling, what is an appropriate form of, of prevention at this point for
4: her? So this is someone who you could consider for a low-dose antimicrobial prophylaxis, either uh, continuous or intermittent in nature. Um, in this particular patient, a uh, pericoidal uh, low dose antibiotic um, with something like nitrofurantone, I think, would be appropriate.
1: All right, that's great, so here's a listing of possible continuous prophylaxis regimens or intermittent prophylactic regimens, and uh, she is placed on Macrobid, uh, 100 milligrams a day, and she does very well for this. She takes this for six months, uh, has no infections during that time, and then ceases to, ha- to use her postcodal prophylaxis, and feels remarkably better, and sends you a Christmas card every year in, gra- in gratitude. <laughs> so we will move on now to our second case, this is a 36 year old female who comes in again complaining of <coughs> recurrent infections. She says that there's no obvious trigger to her infections. Sometimes it happens when she's traveling. It, she does seem to be more susceptible at certain times in her menstrual cycle or during periods of increased stress at work or less sleep. Between her infections, she still does have some symptoms. She has what she's describing as urgency and frequency, this feeling of discomfort in the pelvis. And when she takes antibiotics, they do tend to make things better, but this dysuria that she associates with infections tends to persist for several weeks afterwards. So often when she gets an antibiotic course from her primary doctor, it gets 14 days or so of antibiosis to try to help take care of these infections. All right, so we're going to start off with that history and physical. On her exam, or sorry, on her history, she has... Uh, some anxiety and some mild depression for which she takes medications. And on her exam, you note tenderness throughout the pelvis with palpation of the pelvic floor musculature, no specific bladder or urethral pain, and she does have a whitish thick discharge consistent with a yeast infection. Um, now, she is symptomatic today. She's telling me that she's having some burning and some, uh, some pain. But first, let's take a second and say, Dr. Kenton, are there any features on her exam today that are of note to you or that you wanna t- t- to sort of raise as potential concerns?
5: So sure, I would be a little bit concerned about the tenderness on her pelvic floor with palpation, which could be consistent with high-tone pelvic floor dysfunction or myofascial pelvic pain. Um, which often mimics recurrent urinary tract infections and certainly the widest vaginal discharge um, one would want to make sure that she doesn't have a yeast infection and consider treatment for that as well.
1: All right, so as I mentioned, she oops she is symptomatic today, and she does bring with her several records of, of other cultures she's had from her primary care doctor during periods of symptoms. Uh, this is over the past year, she has these five cultures. Dr. Henkling, what do you make of these, uh, this, this set of laboratory results?
4: Well, there, there does seem to be one positive urine culture here, uh, but the remainder suggests contamination. Um, or uh, normal, with normal uh, flora. So this raises the possibility of an alternative diagnosis.
1: All right, and coming back to that, Dr. Kenton, you mentioned the discharge, and then Dr. Hickling has mentioned this questionable uh, culture results. So what do you think of a diagnosis of recurrent UTIs in this patient, Dr. Kenton? Yeah.
5: Uh, this patient does not meet our definition of recurrent urinary tract infection.
1: That's great. So while she does, uh, there is still the possibility of her having infections. This set of cultures and exam findings does not necessarily support that at this time. So that says to us, what do we do for her today? She's got an increase in frequency, she's got some dysuria, she's got some vaginal discharge and a history of all of these contaminated cultures that are sort of unclear. Dr. Anger, what would you do to be able to get some better diagnostic information to help her in her course of treatment?
2: She's a great candidate for a catheterized urine sample for urinalysis and culture.
1: All right, so she does consent to a catheterized specimen, which you do obtain. And after sending that off for analysis, it comes back negative both for the urinalysis for any blood or white blood cells, as well as the urine culture. Um, So what do we do for her? Dr. Kenton, what would you do for her at this point?
5: At this point, I would only treat her yeast infection with either an oral agent like Diflucan or any of the -the over-the-counter agents. That's great, and that does actually make her significantly better
1: with treatment, but then she comes back a couple months later complaining, she says she thinks she has an infection, she's got new acute onset dysuria three months later, and is feeling really, really miserable, and calls your office to say, hey, can you help me, what should I do? Dr. Chai, what would you do for her at this
3: point? Yeah, I think even in someone with a possible pelvic floor, disorder, they still can get acute episodes of cystitis. And sounds like, symptomatically, she's developing another one. So I definitely would check a urinalysis analysis and culture.
1: OK, great. So before you get her culture back, you get a urinalysis. And that comes back with 35 white blood cells, 29 red blood cells, positive bacteria, and very few squamous cells. Her culture is pending at this time. Do you want to treat her right now?
3: Yeah, this looks like a good um, specimen because the squamous cells are low, and she does have cystitis based on the pyuria, so I would definitely treat her empirically while waiting for the culture.
1: Great, so she, you give her macrobid nitrofurantoin 100 milligrams uh, for five days. Uh, And eventually the cultures do come back with E. coli that was sensitive to nitrofurantoin. Uh, And she takes this as directed for the full five days that you gave it to her and improves a little bit. But a week later, she's still completing, after completing treatment, she still has dysuria, still has this sensation of bladder pressure and frequency. And you tell her to kind of wait and do some conservative things like increase water, A couple weeks go by, she's still complaining of these symptoms. So Dr. Stapleton, would you treat her again presumptively at this point?
2: I would not treat her presumptively. I would obtain a culture if it appeared appropriate and consider uh, a referral to a colleague in urology or urogynecology as well.
1: Great. So you do test her again, and this time the culture comes back negative. It's been several weeks since she's had any antimicrobial therapy. So at this point, she probably needs something additional. Dr. Anger, what do you think is the right thing to, to do for this patient moving forward?
2: Based on her history and her exam with pelvic floor tenderness that we're thinking of, like Dr. Kenton said, high tone pelvic floor dysfunction, and she's a great candidate for pelvic floor physical therapy. That's great.
1: So she does enter pelvic floor physical therapy and a lot of her baseline dysuria resolves. Uh, She feels a lot better and thanks you for your excellent care. Okay, we'll move on to our third case, which is that of an 84-year-old, independently living female, who comes to your office complaining of recurrent urinary tract infections. Now, right now, she doesn't think she has an infection, but at baseline, she still complains of some pain with initial penetration during intercourse, as well as baseline vaginal dryness and irritation. Uh, when she gets an infection, she typically notes worsening dysuria, urinary frequency and urgency, but still has a little bit of dysuria that persists between infections. And this has been the case for years and years and years. She's never had a hospitalization or an episode of pyelonephritis in the past. So as with the previous cases, we'll go on and do a history and physical. She has a, a history notable for hypertension and osteoarthritis, and she does have a prior personal history of breast cancer, uh, status post lumpectomy, but she is this was 35 years ago, and she been ruled to be cured. She's on metoprolol and celecoxib is needed for her arthritis pain. And on exam, she really just has a normal normal anatomy, but thinning and, and other findings consistent with vaginal atrophy. So um, what should we do for her today? She does have that baseline dysuria. Should we test her for an infection? Dr. Chai?
3: So, I mean, these are somewhat difficult cases just because, you know, symptoms are sometimes difficult to elicit. But in someone who doesn't have an acute change, I would be tempted not to test her fully aware that she does have this background of you know, dysuria. So I would not test her right now because there's, she doesn't feel like she has an infection. There's no acute changes.
1: All right, great. So she does, however, still have the chronic vulvar irritation and dryness, and she really is anxious about having more UTIs in the future and wants to do something to prevent that as well. So given that constellation of symptoms, Dr. Kenton, what would you do for her at this point?
5: So I think her, are, her symptoms are consistent with genitourinary syndrome of menopause, and she'd be an excellent candidate for any of the vaginal estrogen therapies. Um, and of note, these would not be contraindicated with their history of breast cancer, and sometimes that takes a little bit of discussion with the patient to help them understand that it, there's no increase, they're at no increased risk. It's great. So she does start her vaginal estrogen and notes substantial
1: improvements in her vulvar irritation and a couple months go by and she has not called your office about any possible infections until a couple, two, three months later she does call and say that her primary care doctor told her to call you because she had her routine physical annual exam which included a urinalysis and reflex culture and it demonstrated 50,000 units of Klebsiella pneumonia. And so her doctor told her to call to see if she should get treatment. So Dr. Hickling, how would you take care of this this, uh, urine culture binding?
4: So this, by definition, is asymptomatic bacteria and does not require treatment.
1: Wonderful. At this point, she has no acute changes in her symptoms. She still has only that mild urgency and frequency that she typically has. Her vulvar irritation is much better, and you counsel her that in situations like that, regardless of the culture that she gets, there's no need for active treatment. All right, so she, she does fine with that, doesn't call you again until several months later when she does develop acute onset dysuria with, with, with acute onset increased frequency and urgency, no hematuria, no fevers or flank pain, no leukocytosis, and, but she does have a culture that demonstrates 100,000 CFUs of E. coli. Now we're still waiting for the susceptibilities to come back, but she does have a history of prior cultures with ESBL. So Dr. Stapleton, what would you do for her at this moment?
2: In this case, I would choose among the first-line therapies phosphomycin because that may well cover the ESBL E. coli. And one comment in your lab, you might want to check to make sure they are testing for susceptibility because not all labs do unless you ask for it. All right. And so she takes a
1: single dose of phosphomycin, and returns to your office feeling much better, currently asymptomatic, basically back to baseline and feeling, feeling quite well. Uh, Dr. Anger, do you think at this point uh, you should proceed with a, a, a check to make sure that she's
2: cleared this infection? Now, this is difficult because patients often want, oh, I need to recheck my urine, but we don't want, if their, their symptoms have resolved, we don't wanna do what's called a test of cure, because what that is is essentially looking for asymptomatic bacteriuria, which we're not gonna treat. All right, great. So she does, uh, she does
1: feel better. You don't treat this. She continues on her vaginal estrogen and after about a year of being on vaginal estrogen, notes that she has not had any more infections. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit a spontaneous one to Dr. Kenton. So she's been, on, um, she's been on a year of vaginal estrogen. Would you stop it at this point or would you have her continue?
5: The evidence for continuing vaginal estrogen, most of the studies are obviously only go up to one year um, but given the low risks and the increased benefits for both her vaginal atrophy and her recurrent urinary tract infections, I would recommend keeping her on for a prolonged period, if not
1: forever that's great so thank you all um, and that concludes our case she did great and thanks you again and also sends you a she sends you a holiday card every year <laughs> all right so I'm gonna go just kind of revisit a couple of the big main themes that come out of the guidelines and I think you've probably been able to tell that that we really felt as a panel that cultures were quite central to the care and 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 treatment of, of recurrent urinary tract infections it's both necessary for the diagnosis and this includes being able to rule out confounding conditions, which can be things like pelvic floor dysfunction, as we demonstrated in our second case, things like interstitial cystitis, recurrent vaginal infections, and a variety of other pelvic disorders that can often present with symptoms quite similar to UTIs. So especially in the presumptive treatment is reasonable at an initial cystitis visit, especially if the patient has difficulty accessing care, but if there are recurrences of these infections, it's really important to continue to monitor them with, infect, with, with cultures and urinalyses, analyses, both to monitor the, the, the quality of the culture, as well as to monitor the infections themselves, the development of antimicrobial resistance, and to ensure that you're really treating the right thing and that you have the right diagnosis. In addition, continuing to monitor these cultures along the care pathway of the patient ensures that you're providing adequate prophylaxis and that they haven't developed either different infections or new multi-drug resistance, and it allows you to monitor the treatment efficacy so that you can respond to that, any changes or any failure of that therapy in real time. In addition, we felt that there was very strong evidence that we need to be good antibiotic stewards and when patients present with infections to provide them with the shortest course of an effective antibiotic that has the least systemic effect on the rest of their body, which is termed as collateral damage, meaning the least least uh, effect on the gut microbiome, the least effect on other parts of the body, and the fewest side effects and, and risk of additional inf- infections in other sites. Um, and this is, is highly important To both prevent complications in individual patients and to be responsible about helping to prevent antimicrobial resistance moving forward for us as a community. And as Dr. Stapleton mentioned, part of that also involves knowing a little bit about your community's relative resistance to different types of infections. Um, The rates of resistance to to macrobid, or maybe I can ask Dr. Stapleton actually to speak to this a little bit. The rates of macrobid resistance are relatively low versus, as you said, uh, Bactrim.
2: Do you Right, extremely low in North America. generally less than
1: 1%. Uh, but the rates with, with bactrim resistance can be much higher in the community, and that requires sort of an awareness of, of your specific community's an- antibiogram. Last, uh, next, we felt strongly that intermittent courses of higher-dose antibiotics was overall more harmful to patients than a course of prophylactic antibiotics when UTIs continue to recur. and so while this isn't a formal part of the guidelines, we feel that if a patient is coming back with several recurrent episodes of UTIs, that it is better at that point to put them on something prophylactic, and in addition, counsel them about risk factors and things that they can do outside of antibiosis uh, to try to keep them from having recurrent episodes of full-blown infections, as that seems to be far more damaging to them than taking something on a daily basis or an, an intermittent basis to manage and prevent infections moving forward. And then lastly, management of these infections should really be focused on alleviating patient symptoms and preventing recurrence and reducing the adverse events. So while we don't advocate for not treating infections, what our experience tells us is that patients often are become far more anxious about repeated courses of antibiotics than I think we realize as providers and are often very open to the concept of waiting for cultures to come back before initiating treatment or trying symptomatic management with things like peridium or NSAIDs or increased water intake and hydration or cranberry um, while trying to get a better picture about what's going on. So, for example, in our second case where the patient has dysuria that's been going on for several weeks, it may be very appropriate to have a a shared decision-making session with that patient and say, you know, You've had this yeast infection. You've had uh, these side effects of antibiotics. And we really think that it would be best if we can get a clear picture of what's going on with your condition prior to initiating another course of antibiotics and potentially causing you more harm. And there are significant numbers of studies to demonstrate that patients are open to those discussions. They're open to waiting on antibiotics. They're open to trying other things. And then lastly, I do want to come back and maybe, maybe give Dr. Kenton a second to talk about some of the psychosocial impacts of UTIs on patients who have had them, and and really kind of stress the importance of that in our, in our management of these patients. Dr. Kenton, do you mind?
5: Yeah, I think that we just have to be really cognizant that women get, as Dr. Anger had alluded to, they get shamed for certain behaviors that probably don't contribute, and there's many other things that can kind of factor in that actually aren't infectious, but lead into similar symptom profiles. And we really have to be cognizant to make sure we're treating the whole patient.
1: I think we we very much have a tendency to to underestimate the psychosocial effects of of this condition and the guilt and the shame that patients feel. And so focusing our care, not just on the treatment of of a culture or a lab result is is highly important. Focusing on the care of the patient and alleviating both that that fear of recurrence as well as the the social and psychological burden of this condition is is a, a huge part of our care. All right, I'm going to finish up with a plug for the Recurrent UTI course, which will go over these Recurrent UTI um, guidelines in greater detail that will be starting later this morning. Um, And there is additional uh, information on the guidelines in the Guidelines app, as well as in the Guidelines at a Glance book, which you can get in the Science and Technology Hall. And finally, I'll finish up with um, acknowledgments for our panel. Uh, this is the Recurrent UTI panel, and I want to also give a little shout out to Aaron Kirkby from the AUA, who has been absolutely instrumental in helping us put together these guidelines, as well as Roger Cho, um, uh, who who did uh, quite a bit of the data analysis and um, systematic review of the literature for us as well. Uh, and for all of the external reviewers who helped uh, uh, to, to refine the guidelines to um, really create a product that we're very proud of. So thank you very much for your attention.
0: Thank you very much and we hope that you continue to enjoy the AUA University podcast. If you have any mailbag type questions on urologic cases, we are hoping to start a urology mailbag of questions and answers on how the experts might treat a certain scenario. Please send those case scenarios or potential questions to education at auanet.org and look forward to that feature in the future.